Well, have you ever heard of any Christians say, I can't stand that person. I hate them. Have you ever heard of a Christian say, I don't want anything to do with them ever. I don't care about people. I don't like people. Matter of fact, I even hate people. Have you ever heard of people saying things like that? Um, Well, this passage in 1 John today, you've heard of that, or if you've ever caught yourself in doing that, maybe the Holy Spirit has caught you in that and convicted you. So anyway... You can say, we have a challenging passage that's coming to us today in this passage that looks easy to us as Christians, but when we really look at the depth of what it means and what's in our hearts sometimes, then it can get to every one of us. Uh, we are in First uh, John, and um, John is concerned that uh, many were saying that they were Christians, They're all saying they were Christians, but uh, they had beliefs and they had actions, but they really weren't consistent with the faith. Their lives weren't lining up. So the epistle here, this letter, helps believers to check others that are that way and even check ourselves. We are to be examining ourselves. But these false teachers that were coming in were wreaking havoc in the church. And they were saying that sin really didn't matter since that was the flesh and you are spiritual, so it doesn't matter. And by the way, we have mystical, secret knowledge, they would say. And so you're okay. You don't have to worry about that. Don't worry about um, sin. And some had no love for others. Absolutely no love. They didn't care about other people. They they didn't practice self-sacrificing love, that agape love. So John wants the readers to know that true Christians will manifest righteousness and love. And we looked at that test last week that dealt with righteousness and obedience. So a true Christian will obey God's law and His Word. He will desire to do that. And this week we're dealing with a test that is of love. And John has mentioned this already in this epistle. I think in chapter 2, 7, and 8. Uh, he hit on that uh, whenever he said that um, uh, I write no new commandment, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which this is true in Him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. And there he's talking about this has all, always been talked about and, and he'll elaborate on this one commandment and, and uh, the, the great commandment of love. Um, all of that is part of what a believer is. So anyway, um, he's saying that we have doctrinal tests, we have social tests, which is what we're dealing with today, and we have the moral test, which is our righteousness. Uh, how are we morally? The doctrinal test is what do people say about Christ? What do they say about Him? Do they confess Jesus Christ as their Lord? Um, the moral test is do they obey Christ? And the love test, or the social test, is uh, found here today. And do they love God? Do they have a love for the brethren? And that's how they can show that they love God uh, by that. So that test can manifest where one is truly at. Do they really have that kind of love for others? So we start in uh, 1 John chapter 3 and in verse 11. 
And he says, um, yeah, verse eleven. I need my light. It's dark over here. You know, dark and light. John. You know, he talks about darkness and light. No kidding. I do miss it. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning that we should love one another. Sounds familiar, right? Everybody knows that. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But we'll stop there. We'll stop at verse 16, and that will be our first section. John is beginning uh, here with telling them that you've known this from the beginning. The moment you became a Christian... The moment that you paid attention to our doctrine, the Apostles' doctrine, you knew immediately that you were to have love for, for others. I mean, that's a, a natural understanding that, uh, that you'd love others. And so that's the message, what uh, is all behind this. This is the apostolic message from the beginning. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning. The message. This is what we talked about here. Now the thing is, we've already said that the message never changes. Right? The Word of God is... 2,000 years old as far as the New Testament is concerned and older than that when you take the whole Old Testament and, and you combine that all together. It's thousands of years old. There is nothing new that we are to add to it. It's all right here. It's consumed in that. Now, methods might change and technology might change, but what's going to happen if we do that? Well, that's okay, because people can understand. They can get a presentation that's different. But I do want to tell you that even we can use technology, which is good and it helps, and that's new. The Word never changes, does it? It's always the same thing. And so we're going to see John continue to repeat and repeat and repeat again some of the same things that we have already seen. So this is not the last time we're going to come across um, this issue as he brings us forth. So he says, this is the beginning. Now Paul went to Mars Hill, and you remember in Acts 17? He went there where there were all the philosophers went, and he got his time to speak. And they're always looking for something new. That's what they want. They want to hear something new and different. Well, Paul comes up with the Gospel. Well, to them, this is new and different. It's the good news, so it is new in that sense, but it's not anything new that's ever been offered as far as God has brought forth for salvation. And so he presents that in the old way, showing, hey, this God that created the world, that created you, he starts right where they're at, and he says, I want you to know, this God that is so close to you, He's commanding everyone, everywhere to what? Repent. To acknowledge who He is, repent of their sins, and have faith in Him. That's really what He was addressing whenever He went to the Athenians. Uh, 
It was the old gospel message is really what it was. It was a repentance message. And that's always been throughout Scripture. John the Baptist says, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus said, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Paul was saying, Repent. Peter, in the first message of the church um, on the day of uh, Pentecost, Repent. And that's what the message is in the Gospel. When people will see a holy God, then their next response is to repent. And uh, Peter, who was regenerated by the Holy Spirit as he wrote um, his his epistle in first or I think it's in second Peter one twelve he said, Hey, I'm not writing anything new to you. I'm writing to remind you of these things. And so if we kept getting new things, we couldn't handle those new things because we have enough trouble handling what's everything that's in here. Just when we think we've got it, and by the way we don't There's so much in here that we need to be reminded, oh, I forgot about that. And if you remember, a lot of times if you haven't been in the Old Testament, there's stories in there about David and Saul and Samuel. And Carolyn was asking me the other day and I go, oh, boy, I forgot. I don't don't remember. I had to turn back there and kind of read through that and refresh my mind because I hadn't been in that area. I needed to be uh, remembering so we have so much stuff here. That's why it's always good to be in it. You can't be in it enough, can you? John knew that there are basic truths. There are basics to life of the faith. And one of them, and it's the most basic, is loving one another. You know, That's a mark of a Christian. There certainly isn't anything new here as John is bringing forth. John wants to make it remembered and to be really clear. Have you noticed that with John? He'll say something and then we'll come right back and say, well, we've already done those tests and here we go through with another battery of tests again. And that's what this is today, the test of love. And he'll come back and he'll do a moral test. He'll do a, a test uh, dealing with uh, the, how do you confess Christ. You know, Again, doctrinal issues. He'll just keep coming that way, only he might come in at a little bit different angle, but he's really saying the same thing all the way through. And you might say, well, that's getting kind of boring. Well, it's not really because he wants to make sure that you get this down. And once you get it in your head, it really helps that you can uh, draw from it. Now, this would be the opposite of the false teachers, the, uh, the pre-Gnostics, as I call them. Uh, setting up uh, what Gnosticism would be later on. They opposed the old stuff. What they wanted is something new that people hadn't heard, that it would get their attention and people would fall right after it. And that's what they do today. They always want to hear something new. They want to hear a new revelation. Somebody, I have a new revelation. I've had a new dream. I've had a new vision. And people go off running off after that. And the fact of the matter is, uh, if it is according to Scripture, it's not anything new, is it? The thing is, it's all right here. Um, These mystical teachings that they would come up with would be seductive or secretive or vague or kind of cloudy. You know, did you see the fog this morning? And you couldn't see very far, you know, and it was really thick. At least it was out at our place. And uh, I don't know, the sun came up and just burned it up real quick. And that's what I think truth does to when darkness starts trying to get into what truth is. But uh, it was, was kind of hazy, and so you can't really see what all is you know, behind that, that fog. 
And uh, they had quite a fog, these false teachers. So we have to remember, that's part of this. Every time we look in 1 John, it says, watch out for those guys, because that's what they're doing. They're bringing in this stuff that you don't need. It's unhealthy. And uh, so he starts talking about hate. We're going to talk about love. The test is love, but he's going to come at an angle that is from the negative side now. He's going to give us an example and he's going to use Cain of all people. He's going to go right back to Genesis in the beginning and he will uh, bring forth what a characteristic of hate is. What love is not. So 12 through 14 is the example of uh, Cain who was the wicked one and murdered his brother. And John is saying, don't be like Cain. Don't be like him. Cain's the only one who is named in these contrasts. You know, we have um, truth and error and light and darkness. Well, here Cain is actually mentioned in here. And he had a heart attitude that was inward here. It was his heart. Jealous. Jealousy and envy. And he expressed that in what he did. He showed what was really in his heart by his wicked act of murder. And so I think that is a pretty good example John uses here. And really, what the real problem is for Cain is that it's rebellion against God. That was his problem. He was rebelling. He had a rebellious heart. What was it that Cain did so wrong? As far as the sacrifice is concerned, you can say, well, he brought a sacrifice and his brother Abel brought a sacrifice. Abel uh, was the one who had the animals. He was a farmer. And that's what he brought to God. And Cain brought his fruit to God. His fruits, vegetables, whatever, to God. And you can say, see, he brought that. Uh, that's what he did. So he did what he knew best to bring. And it's not fair that God would do that kind of thing. Well, see, God has always had a sacrificial system set up from the very outset. Matter of fact, as soon as Adam and Eve sinned on that first sin, they found out that they were naked and they tried to cover themselves, but God had to cover them. He had to cover them with animal skins. That means an animal had to be sacrificed. An animal lost its life because of sin. So God had already set this up. This is kind of a law of first mention that will follow on through the rest of Scripture. And by the time you get to the law, you see God using animals and blood and uh, as, as that had been going on there. So I think, and not only think, I believe this is really what happened. God had already set up when there was going to be an animal sacrifice, what was going to be needed, and where. You know, the who, what, when, where, why, how, all that. Those are important questions. And that's what God had already given them, even either directly or in an indirect way. I would think Adam definitely would have had that message. And so when it was time to bring that sacrifice... They each brought their sacrifice. So, I believe Adam would have at least explained. Abel obeyed God in bringing the right sacrifice. He came with his slain lamb. But Cain brought his fruit. How nice. His own works. He disobeyed. This 
is a classic example of going against the very plan of God. That ruins the whole plan, the sacrifice that God had in mind. Somebody comes up there and brings their own work. This is detestable. And that's what it is to God when people bring their own works to God when only the sacrifice of Christ can do it, isn't it? That's what we focus on, that sacrifice of Christ. So God accepted Abel's offering. He accepted his, but Cain, he didn't accept. Now, Cain can go one way or the other on this. He could have said, oh my, I'm sorry you did say to bring the animal. My attitude was wrong. I know exactly what you told me. But I brought what I wanted to bring. He could have done that and said, Lord, will you forgive me? Next time I'll bring what you tell me. God had told him. He told Cain that, hey, listen, you have a chance here to make this thing right. Sin is crouching right at the door. But you can do this or do that. And Cain got the terrible attitude of envy and jealousy right there. Because God didn't accept His sacrifice that He brought that He thought was right. Because of envy of His brother that who brought the right one, He killed Abel. It was envy. And we see what happens with envy and jealousy. God gave Cain every opportunity to make it right. Cain was ticked off. Man, he was mad. So he becomes jealous. And as a result of jealousy, hatred took over. And as a result of hatred, then came murder. That's a pretty good pattern of what happens. People are envious of what others have. They have it. I don't have it. They literally go in to their house, stick a gun to them, kill them, take their stuff and go out. That's what it goes on. It happens all the time. People go into convenience stores. People go into stores. They, they do the robbery. And they uh, do what they do. They commit murder. You've seen the story of uh, what happened was it last fall uh, during the, the football game up in Columbia where that young man um, killed uh, an innocent victim. And there he was at a store at night and he killed him. And he wanted something that he didn't have and he gets in a way or whatever and boom, there we go. Jealousy. There's a hatred involved. You don't care about that person. There's no love. And then it leads to murder. Well, I wonder, do we really appreciate the seriousness of how bad envy and jealousy is? And I know everyone's sitting here thinking, I'm glad I've never committed murder. But the fact of the matter is, we all have committed murder. We all have murdered people. John is likening uh, it to jealousy, to murder, envy. Uh, It can be among God's people. And it can lead to a murder in our hearts. So right at the beginning, the first act of murder. That's interesting here in 1 John 3, verse 12. Look at this. Very interesting. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. Interesting about the Greek word there. Uh, The word means to butcher. 
The word means when it says to murder, or you might have a King James that might say he slew him. We don't use that word slew anymore. But it means to butcher. It means to kill. Now there is another word in the Greek that could have been used for this dealing with murder. But he didn't use that word. He used a precise Greek word here to tell us what happened. It means to, what do we say, butcher? It means to slit the throat. Now think about this. If you have a sacrifice of an animal, how did God tell them how to kill that lamb? Slit the throat. That's what they always did in the sacrifices that would come later on in in the law. They would slit the throat. Cut the throat. Now there hadn't been any murder of human beings. And the only thing they knew about was the slitting of a throat of an animal. And you know what Cain did? I think this is related to that. He did what the only way he knew how to kill. He hadn't ever killed before. This is, seems like it might be the first sacrifice. It's not stated there. But he was. that's what they were told how to do it. To cut that throat. So Cain slit his brother's throat, probably. An act of defiance against God. Because instead of slitting the throat of the lamb that he could have gotten from his brother, made some kind of a trade with him to get that, because that's what he was told to bring. Instead of slitting that throat of the lamb, what does he do? He slits the throat of his brother and kills him. Does that make sense? I never knew that before, and it opened it up wide open of saying, yeah, he knew about sacrifice, didn't he? He knew about how you were to kill these animals. That's probably the only way he knew how to kill if you hadn't seen it before and nobody's ever done it, how do you do that? Why would you even think that, right? Well, we'll get to that. It's, I think God had to reveal a way to sacrifice something uh, there. Uh, so He says, don't be like Cain. He is a wicked one who butchered or even slaughtered, cut the throat of his brother. Okay, you can say, hey, Listen, none of us are going to do something like that. We're not going to go out and kill somebody. What harm does just a little bit of jealousy and envy do? Just a little bit. I'm not talking about going and killing somebody. From time to time, we might have a little bit of jealousy and envy. Somebody has something, you know, and we would like to have that. You don't really do anything about it. But do you want to see how serious it is? John is comparing it to murder. Jealousy and envy is compared to murder. As far as God is concerned, He is so holy, He is so pure, that anything, any kind of thought that is ungodly uh, does not line up with His holiness. So He uses an illustration. A lack of literal brotherly love that Cain didn't have. He had, had, he had this lack of love. And that really proves his absence of eternal life. Cain here is one who is not of God. He says, is this possible? Believers, can they be envious and have jealousy of one another? Is that possible? I think there are a few things today that really have hurt the cause of Christ more than 
almost anything. And sometimes it's jealousy, it's envy. Uh, you can have pastors being envious of other pastors. Maybe they have bigger churches. Maybe they have a, a ministry that is known all over the United States and all over the world and they have huge ministries and all sorts of different things going. Uh, how about elders? Envying other elders and deacons, envying other deacons and businessmen in the fellowship who are envious of other businessmen who have bigger businesses and more success and professionals that envy other people and people who have education that has more education than other people and they see them and they become envious. And then it goes on and on, doesn't it? We could go on and on but I think we really need to appreciate the seriousness here that John brings forth of how this can multiply to extremes. Just a little bit of envy and jealousy. What does it do? Well, in verse 12, we see a reason that Cain did this. Why did Cain do this? Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. And there is the envy. There is the jealousy. Why did he do it? Well, he was a child of the devil. He was a child of the devil. Remember back in his Gospel, John 8 44. As we're turning there, have you guys ever wondered why people come to the door and then they then they turn around and go back? I wish that they could come on in. Maybe sometime, if we happen to see somebody coming in, maybe somebody can greet them and tell them that we're we're preaching the word of God. Then they'll be running further. That's interesting. Uh, they haven't. They didn't even hear me that time. But I'm not trying to make fun of them. I'm just. I, I would love for them to come in and sit down and, and fellowship with us. But I don't know. It's. I, I think they think that there is a church here. But I, maybe maybe we need to pray about that. That they would come in. Maybe they they need. Uh, they will do that at the end of the message today. Anyway. Um, He's a child of the devil. In John 8.44, You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. That's his, his very nature. Now, this is the problem that John is addressing that Cain was. Cain is a child of the devil. Cain followed the very footsteps of his spiritual father. Followed exactly the way that he did it. Isn't that interesting? He followed in those same footsteps. He was a murderer. That's what Satan is. He despised all the people who obey God. Satan does. Well, Cain despised the righteousness of his brother Abel. He despised him. Cain had a lack of love. He was not of God. 
that he was of the devil, who is a murderer, who is a liar. That is his very nature. And that's what Cain was. That's why he did what he did. He was of the wicked one. His practices were evil. Isn't that interesting? That's what he practiced. Evil. And so in 1 John, as John had written about what Jesus had said here, I'm sure he's thinking this same thing, uh, maybe uh, something along the same lines uh, that he had written in, in the Gospel. There's one thing that the world doesn't like. There's a lot of things they don't like, but there's one thing the world doesn't like, and they prove it. They prove it constantly. They don't like people who are holy or righteousness. They'll call it self-righteousness. Or they'll call it, uh, might call it other things. Oh, you're so righteous when you're you're talking the gospel and they're sinful. You even say, hey, I'm sinful too. And, but they, you know, it's like uh, goody two-shoes. Remember that as a kid, you know, and you hear that. That's that's the way that you are. The, The people who are not believers don't understand now they might become believers, and that's that's why you why you want to pray for them and uh, give them truth and be as much friends as you can to them. But whenever you start displaying holiness, it start ma- it starts making them look bad, and they don't want that. They don't want the guilt. And holiness is like the brightness of the light being turned on and exposes their evil deeds. And that's what they're afraid of. And so they don't like it when you're around, when you start talking about it, or when you really show it and you don't do the same thing that they do. And at first they might even say, hey, I admire you that you're not doing what I do because I, I know that that's pretty valiant that you, you, know, you, you don't do that anymore. But eventually it kind of gets to them. And this is why they disdain Christians because of the, the righteousness. And so if we make it very clear that sin is sin and you really start hitting on this is offending a holy God, the unbeliever now wants to persecute the Christians. That's just a natural thing. They don't like to be exposed with their sin. Sometimes we really get surprised when unbelievers treat us Christians badly. Because we really want to be liked by everybody. That's really what we, and that's a good thing that you be liked, but I want to tell you some bad news. You're not ever going to be liked by everybody, and if you are, you are not walking the walk. That's pretty convicting me sometimes whenever, you know, unbelievers are, you know, they like me and they're comfortable with me. Maybe I haven't made it clear enough what I really believe. Maybe that's convicting to me about that. Uh, We want to be liked and we want to be comfortable. When we're quiet sometimes, it's a lot more comfortable than saying something that you know that's going to start rocking the boat. Here we go. Ah, We can become disliked. We hate to be disliked. We We all like to be liked, don't we? But you know that not everybody's going to like you. And by the way, if they dislike you, if they see you uh, daily and you don't even have to say anything, they can even, some of them, begin to hate you. 
That hurts. And so we can become masters of disguise and disguise our Christianity and what we're about and start hiding the truth. And the church has been very good at that in our times. It has blended in right with the world. And the world says, huh, okay. Oh, yeah, that's fine. They're just just like us. Or they can call you, you're a hypocrite. Yeah, I do this, but you're not supposed to be doing that. Isn't that interesting? Funny thing about drinking. I don't know why it is. But, you know, there's a lot of young Christians today really pushing the the thing that, hey, it's okay to drink. It's not a stumbling block. It's okay. I can do it anytime I want. And I know there are a lot of people really addressing against that today. And um, I think it probably should be because, and these people are called young Calvinists, and they're making it very bold and that, uh, hey, I can drink. I'll have to think of a Romans 14 and say, hey, maybe you need to be quiet about that. Why are you making it so bold that you can go around drinking? It's causing stumbling blocks. I know that unbelievers see a believer drinking, and you know what the first thing they're going to do? If somebody says, uh, you know, dealing with Christianity, and say, well, Joe over here, we don't have any Joes in here today, right? <laughs> Joe over here, you know, I saw him drinking. I saw what he bought a six pack over there at Schulte's. <laughs> And why does that automatically come out? Hey, if it's okay for Christians to do that, okay. Well, the thing is, what does it do? It blows a great witness. And then the Christians will come back and say, hey, but it's okay, it's okay. Well, maybe so, but most often it's going to, especially in our society, unbelievers, they're going to notice those. And why do they do that? And even young believers can say, huh, that guy goes to my church. They're doing this. And it can be something else besides drinking. It can be something else. You know? And all of a sudden it can cause all sorts of stumbling blocks. But it's interesting that non-Christians can see you doing something that's kind of black. You know, not necessarily, well, I can say it's not black or white. It's kind of in between, let's say. But they can even discern that, hmm, that's not right. I'm supposed to be Christian. What a hypocrite. That's why I'm not a Christian. See, they're hypocrites. Have you heard anybody say that? I bet all, all of you have. Well, if we would live as aliens, I know, I know what you think when you think of aliens. You think of these green guys coming up, you know. <laughs> they got these long necks and weird looking heads and eyeballs sticking out of their heads. <laughs> but um, we, I don't think we look that bad, you know, myself. But we are aliens. The Bible says we're foreigners, we're strangers. <laughs> We are that. And the thing is, this is really not our home. We just we, we happen to live here. We are citizens of here, but we're really citizens of heaven. That's really where we're shooting for. Even though we haven't been there, that's really our home. But when we start making ourselves really at home here and we don't have enemies, really it's kind of kind of makes you think, hmm, I wonder why people don't dislike me. Everybody likes me. That can be good in a way, but um, sometimes it might be because we're hiding. Uh, the world actually is, hates Christians. And, and you've seen it out in the political realm. You've seen it what they're doing in schools. You, you hear the news every day. Some kid has just mentioned something about God, and they get kicked out. They write a paper on creation, 
They get kicked out of school. They wear a t-shirt that just says um, something that Jesus is Lord and um, they have to get that shirt off and go home and get a new shirt. I mean, it's, it's been said every day. Well, the whole motive of public education, to be real honest with you, if you want to go back to the 1800s, and it's pretty well gotten there. I think it's already there. Um, the whole motive was to dismiss Christianity out of a nation. And the place where we can start is right in the public schools. And if you look at 1920, it already started. By the time I was a kid in grade school, and in junior high, I can remember how science presented evolution. Yeah, that's me, this guy that's over 50 years old. They were doing it back then in the 60s. 60s. To me, it probably sounds like the 20s. But that, that was going on then. But it was kind of light. You know, and they were still presenting creation. I had a Christian science teacher, really. He was a very sound Christian. And, but he had to say, okay, this is what's in here. This is at a little... Elden. It was Elden Public Schools. But he made it clear that really creation is the right way. But if you try to do that today, you would probably lose your job. Folks, public education, the whole idea behind it is to destroy Christianity. I think it's done quite well, hasn't it? They took the Bible out of it. They took Christ completely out of it. They have taken morals out of it and plugged it in with everything that is against what we believe. I think it's interesting that there were the more... more, um, Kind of, uh, Walden, Waldensians who go way back to the 1100s, 1200s, and they pretty well filtered out and it was a Reformation, but they, they still kind of existed all the way through. And some of them came to America in the late 1800s. And, see, they had always taught their kids. The parents did the teaching. They gave them the education. And believe me, the American people who came over from England or were born here were not stupid because they didn't go to school. I want to tell you, pick up one of the books that was written back in the 1600s and you try to make sense out of it. You can make sense because it's incredible. The, the language, the great language that is so, they're so fluent in their writings. Read the Puritans. These guys were highly educated. They went to school after they knew how to read and write and do arithmetic and all those things. They went to school that was designed as a seminary where they taught the Bible. And higher education went along with it. And everything came from God. Today, nothing comes from God. Matter of fact, nothing comes from nothing. <laughs> and so, believe me, all that math and science and everything they're teaching, some things can be right in there, but where the source is is totally wrong. How can I go to a place that I know that is teaching against God? And you go higher education out of high school right into college what are they teaching? What are they teaching there? You have professors that have a design to get you to doubt your faith. And I understand I think it's something like 80 to 90% of Christian kids who grew up went through youth 
That's another thing. Some of the youth programs, I really am leery about most of them. Sorry, I go against the grain. But um, some of those youth programs can be disastrous too. But then they go into college and guess what? Most of those, quote, Christians become evolutionists and they become agnostic or even atheist within the first year. Some of those professors take great pride in stripping them down in the first week. It's all over because you cannot challenge them. You've had where professors get so angry and irate they walk out of class. <laughs> you hear these stories quite frequently. They can't. They, otherwise, they probably would have killed the kid who even challenged them with the Christian faith. Wow. Where are we at? Well, you have people that are from the progeny of Cain. Cain is the prototype of this world. There are children of God and there are children of the devil. The spiritual seed of Cain continued to hate and persecute the spiritual progeny of Abel. It's always been that way since this happened. Since this murder happened. Since this, that started with envy and jealousy. And so that is why we go into the next verse found in verse 15 of chapter 3. Let's look at verse 13. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. It's kind of what we're talking about, right? We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He does not love his brother, abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. The attitude in the heart is the issue here. It's not just the act of murder, but it's the attitude of murder. True murder is that which is conceived right here, right in the heart. Deep within, that comes on the outside of man. What comes out of there? Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, etc., etc. All of those things come from here. They come from the inside and they make a man unclean. They show that he's unclean. One is guilty before God in the inward part as well as the actions. People can say, yeah, but I've never done that. Well, I'm glad you didn't do it. That even means more consequences. But here's the problem with mankind. It's here. It's on the inside. Why do we, even as Christians, think some of these thoughts that we have today? Why? Hate is as much as murder is the very act. Hate is just like murder. In God's eyes, hatred is the moral equivalent of murder. You say, well, that's in God's eyes, but I didn't do it. Well, good. Don't do it. I mean, even if you thought of it. Or people can say, well, hey, listen, I already thought of it. I might as well do it because I'm guilty before God now. No, don't do it. Because that means even worse things will come out. You're not off the hit, uh, uh, off the uh, the hook because you've not done something. You've not killed somebody. Uh, if you're not a believer, if one's not a believer, what are they? They're children of the devil. And whether you kill somebody or not, you still manifest your hatred of others because you don't have a a natural or, or a love that is from God. There is a natural love that 
families have, people have for people, and that kind of thing. That's amazing that people can still love even without knowing God. But uh, you might not have used a dagger or a knife on anybody and slit their throat, but John is not about um, this. He's not. He, he's talking about uh, maybe looking daggers at your neighbor, uh, at your friend, at your brother and sister in Christ. You could almost have a dagger go through them. You may never ever shed shed any blood. You may not ever lift a hand against another person. But or you you know you you could snub a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ. You could snub them. Have you ever passed on a rumor? I hope not. Have you ever resented any other person in Christ? Have you resented other people? It may not be the act of murder, but if even we have a little resentment, wow. Does God have any resentment? Well, we know that ultimately He's going to bring on His justice and His judgment. And He has the right to do that because He is perfectly holy. He's perfectly just. And His law demands that He has to punish people who are not um, His. But we cannot even have a resentment. The murderous heart. You don't have to commit the act to commit murder. Um, I think of Matthew 5. 21 and 22. Sermon on the Mount. Boy, Jesus made things really clear whenever He started preaching. And He gets down to the very nitty-gritty of what He really means. Because the Pharisees looked so good on the outside. If anybody was righteous, it was those guys. And Jesus comes in and He exposes them and shows they are unrighteous on the inside. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. You've heard of that, right? It's in the law. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. They were bringing on their hatred there and calling them something that went way beyond they should ever do. Uh, The God of heaven sees what's in the heart. The Almighty God can see hatred. And He cries, murder. When He sees lust, He cries, adultery. Whenever He sees a lust in the thought. He says, even if you thought upon another woman or another man, you've committed lust or adultery. Lust is the seed of adultery. And hate and anger are the seed of what? Murder. Wow. We're murderers. Before we come to Christ, that's really what we were. We broke His law in every commandment, didn't we? We broke it everywhere. It was just shattered. All it takes is one to break, but we broke them all. We really did. Aren't you glad for God's mercy? That's what we would be considered. As far as God's eyes were concerned, if it's not the sacrifice of Christ, uh, we're murderers. I never thought of that whenever I came to Christ. I never thought I, uh, I was a murderer. 
Well, I tell you what, if you could tell an unbeliever that today, you say, you know, have you ever, you haven't committed murder, have you? They go, oh, no, I've, I've never done that. And people will say, hey, listen, I've been pretty good. I've never committed murder. We'll start <laughs> with that. They say, yeah, you have. <laughs> I did too. I murdered. And uh, so we can bring that law out to show. Hate is the very embryo of murder. Now, we have to take that murder seriously, don't we? God does. You call yourself a Christian, right? Do you have a grudge against another brethren? Another sister? That's murder. Really? That's what John is putting forth as he as he hits this forth. He's talking about telling you, better check yourself. If you're a Christian, you say you love others, well, here's what this demands. Oh, really? Wow. Okay, 16 and 17. And he hits it a little bit harder. By this we know love because He laid down His life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? Uh, Another aspect of hating or not loving is not really having concern for other needs. Now, Satan's children have a lack of love for others. They're indifferent about it. So, well, certainly don't go around hating everybody. Well, it means just to be indifferent to a need. There's a need, and and we know the Lord's working with that and on us. Well, then that that needs to be met. And uh, I can do that. I'm going to do it. Christians lay down their lives, brothers. Now, John wrote that in his Gospel. Jesus had made that statement, hadn't he? In um, John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. He was calling the apostles his friends. Isn't that great? Christ did that. I think He's the supreme example. We fall short of that supreme example. We don't lay down our lives. And a lot of times we don't really have an opportunity to actually sacrifice your life, but it can mean maybe sacrificing something that somebody else needs. This is a contrast between Jesus and Satan, isn't it? I mean, it's black and white here. So, what he's saying is, you really need to be willing to give up yourselves to whoever. Sacrifice yourself. Sacrificially. Look in James 2. James chapter 2, verse 15. Boy, James is convicting. Very practical book. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what is it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's a dead faith. If we don't do something that we know we can't. If one refuses to help somebody who's in need, they, they could be failing the social test. They could be failing the love test. I'm not saying, well, you, you're not a Christian because you blew that one. But 
We might have failed a test. Anyway. Now this is a mark of an unbeliever. You know, and they even help out other people. They even sacrifice themselves sometimes. But this is definitely a mark of a Christian. I want to read you a, a little quote here. Um, how was the early church thought of? What did the unbelievers think of the early church? Well, they were known for their love. There was an emperor, Hadrian of Rome. This is historical. You won't find this in, uh, in Scripture, but you will find it in secular writing. It was in the early 2nd century, which is the 100s. There was a man called Aristides. And um, the emperor called him to the palace. And he says, hey, I want you to, you've been out there. You've been around those Christians. Can you uh, tell me what they're like? Now, he's not a Christian. And the emperor's not a Christian. A Christian. And so this is what he told him. You guys ready? I quote here. They love one another. They never fail to help widows. They save orphans from those who would hurt them. If they have something, they give freely to the man who has nothing. If they see a stranger, they take him home and are happy as though he were a real brother. (laughs) They don't consider themselves brothers in the usual sense, but brothers instead through the Holy Spirit of God. That's what he said. He'd been around them enough to know that that's what they're saying. Um, They were known for their doctrinal purity back in those early days. But early Christians were really known for their practical love. The unbelieving world saw that. And it made an impact. Well, uh, The emperor Julian, the apostate, complained during his short reign from 361 to 363. And here I quote here. This is the emperor Julian in the Roman Empire. The impious Galileans another name for Christians, support not only their own poor, but ours as well. (laughs) He's saying they not only take care of their own, but they go out to the ones who are not Christians and take care of them too. Wow. Kind of made him mad as they were taking care of him. Boy, if we live like that today, the church did that, just like the early church, I think it would be infectious. I think it would be contagious. I think it could catch on fire. I think it would mushroom if we were to be like that. Our problem, we live in a day where we have social welfare and the state takes care of all the and they give them money if they have babies and they give them more money if they don't work. And so they say, why do I have to work if I can make more money just by staying at home and I'll have more babies and they'll give me more money. And that's the way it works in our social system. And we'll take care. You know, we have a lot of things that I know we may not see it. We may not see Social Security. <laughs> well, I say that lightly, but... Uh, could be, but that Social Security has helped out the older. You know what I'm saying? You know, in, in some senses, that's, that's kind of good, but you can see where the government gets in and they try to control everything, where the church really has its responsibilities, and whenever the government comes in and does what it does, and say, okay, we won't do that. But see, the church, even in this country, established hospitals, 
They established places where people could take refuge in. That's what they did. And when you look at, you know, you'll see a lot of places named after saints and such, I know. But still yet there was something there where there are a lot of other churches. Presbyterians had nursing homes and children's homes. Baptists had nursing homes homes and the children's homes. They took care of those things. Now you don't see that so much because of what how the government has gone in and done the things really of what well, the church should do. Remember the Good Samaritan? You remember what he did? I don't have to go through that story, right? But um, he took care of somebody that other people who were religious leaders and neighbors and stuff that didn't take care of this guy that had been beaten by robbers and left to die. Well, we need to be like the Good Samaritan, Jesus is teaching. Jill Briscoe said that and get off our spiritual donkeys and get down on the streets to the needs of the people. Pretty convicting, isn't it? Okay, we covered part one. Hmm. Now we'll go to part two. There's actually probably more time that needs to be shared with this, but we've kind of been dealing with I'm going to read through it. You ready? We're going to use to go to right to the positive aspect and this is the last section. Um, where are we at? Verse 18. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before Him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. And this is His commandment that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as He gave us commandment. We could spend the whole message on this section. We really could. We move to the positive aspect. We were on the negative. The first component is dealing with religious affections. You don't hear that terminology, but that's from Jonathan Edwards. He wrote a book called Religious Affections. He said this, in fact, right here, is the chief holy affection, loving others. Because that's how we show that we love God. It shows how we're true believers. The chief sign and zeal for holiness is that we love the brethren. That's the chief manifestation of the regenerating work of God that's in us. All of a sudden... um, People who had no affection for other people, who had no interest in people, people that were strangers or people that seemed to be odd, people that seemed to be unlovely, uh, outside our total social structure, outside of our interests, people that you would virtually never have anything to do with because you couldn't connect with them. All of a sudden, you find yourself having care for those people. All of a sudden, you want to do something for them. This is the change of the heart. When we love as Christians are to do, man, there are benefits out of it. And you know what one of them is? It's found in verse 19. And by this, you'll know that you're the truth and shall assure our hearts for God. If we are loving others, we are going to have assurance of salvation. We're going to know that God has acquitted us. He now says you don't have to have, have doubts Because you can look at your love for others. Why do you have love for others? Look at the past acts that God has done and then look what kind of the things that He's had to serve you, to serve Him. 
He forgives our sins. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And now all of a sudden we, we look upon others. We don't have condemnation. Romans 8.1 says, There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And we have proof positive because now it's, we're being drawn to help other people. Another one is answered prayer. This is a benefit of loving others. Um, in verse 22 And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. Whatever we ask, we'll receive from Him. That means we're going to ask in His will. We'll ask what Christ would ask for. Not what we want, but what would be in the name of Christ. What is associated with Christ here? Prayer. It's a presence in our lives, a submission to God. There's obedience and doing what God pleases. And if we're doing, and we, we have confidence in that, then the Holy Spirit is telling us this, and we have confidence. If we have done something, or not done something, where well, we should have done something, well, our, our, sometimes our conscience convicts us. Holy Spirit convicts us. Maybe I should have been more helpful there. Right? Uh, but if we've been... If we're doing what we know we should be doing, it's, it's amazing though that God still forgives. God is a forgiving God. He's a gracious God. It, it totally affects your approach to God if you have love for others. So you'll have assurance of salvation. You'll have your prayers answered. Um, right, you can go right in the presence of God. Go to the, the throne room. Your approach is done with confidence. You're right with God and you're right with your brother. Right? And then 23... Says, and this is His commandment that we should believe on the name of His Son Jesus Christ and love one another as He gave us commandment. Now He who keeps His commandments abides in Him and He in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. That means we know that the Holy Spirit resides in us. There is another benefit of loving others. The Holy Spirit is the one who affects all this. So believing, loving, obeying, are major evidences of true salvation. So whatever state our heart is in, whether it condemns you or not, all of us, I believe, daily need to come to Calvary's Mount. We need to go to the cross and see the blood of the Lamb that was slain because that's where we claim all of this. And when we fall short of loving God and loving others, we look at the cross See what He did there for us. And we see the great love. And we say, you know what? I want to be more like that. I want to lay down my life for others who don't deserve it. Let's pray.